This is exactly right. If you were trying to induce an eating disorder, you would create the environment of ballet. You would force someone to look in the mirror all day and surround them with underweight people. Unless we see a lot more like dancers with different body types at the top, I don't know that ballet will ever be like a eating disorder-free zone. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm your host, Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, With increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is on loving and leaving ballet with our guest, Alice Robb. Alice has written for Vanity Fair, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and The New Republic, among other publications. Her first book, Why We Dream, was recommended by The New Yorker, The New York Times, Today, Vogue, Time, and The Guardian, and has been translated into 17 foreign languages. Her new book, which we will be discussing today, is out, Don't Think, Dear, on Loving and Leaving Ballet. Alice, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, how long has this story this book, this memoir been in you? And when did it start to surface? I mean, I'd say it's been brewing, you know, all along. Um, I went back to when I was working on the book, I went back to my earliest childhood diaries, kind of like the first things I ever wrote, and they were largely about ballet. Um, And yeah, so I, um, I started taking little baby ballet classes, you know, just kind of like running around when I was two or three and then slowly got more serious. Um, But yeah, the book, this book in this version I've been working on um, since like, since I finished my last book really. So 2018, 2019. How difficult, there's so much um, of you in this book um, and you now you in the past and all the research that you did um, back, of course, in your your own research into your own diaries, but also (laughs) um, into the historical field of ballet to your peers that you Mm -hmm. used to dance with. How Mm -hmm. difficult or emotional was it going through that process? I mean, I really enjoyed the research for this book. There were a few different strands of research. One was um, the more historical strand. So for that, I was reading a ton of dancer memoirs. I was reading books about the history of ballet. Um, And then I was also another strand of the book follow is um, following four of my classmates from Mm -hmm. the school of American ballet. Um, We're all in our early thirties now. And um, just kind of looking at how the, dance training has impacted our lives. So a big part of the book involved reconnecting with um, people I knew in childhood. Um, And that didn't really feel like research. I mean, I'd be like, we'd be like having dinner and I just have my phone out recording. Um, But yeah, I mean, a lot of reading, a lot of watching documentaries, um, having conversations, Mm -hmm. looking at old archives. Yeah. But I mean, this was really a passion project. So yeah. it didn't feel like work. <laughs> clearly, clearly a major part of your life, as we'll discuss. Um, among yeah. the among the the reviews, the you know, the the multitude of glowing reviews by people in ballet, people outside of ballet, is how you captured all aspects what might be considered the positive or what might be considered the negative. And I'm using those words very loosely Mm -hmm. by just explaining and sort of being 
like being in the middle, being neutral and not coming to overall conclusions, letting, letting the reader experience it for themselves. Yeah. I've been really um, heartened that most, most of the reviews have noted that this is not, this is neither a takedown of ballet nor a, let's say ringing endorsement. Um, It's really about, um, I mean, there's so much that I gained from ballet that I'm really grateful for and that shaped me in positive ways. And also, you know, there are elements of ballet culture that are just undeniably toxic, especially when we look at them through the, you know, 2023 lens. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, we're going to hit on, we're going to hit on all that. (laughs) And I think as you, as you discussed in the book, growing up in the, you know, formative years in the 90s and girl Mm -hmm. power and a lot of um, liberation. And so there's that aspect of your life outside of the ballet, the social culture that you're growing up in. And then Mm -hmm. there is the culture of ballet, which is a much different message for women on how you should be, how you should look, what you should say, what you should think or not think, right? In many cases, mm-hmm. how were you aware at the time that in a sense there were these, you know, you were code switching between these different mm-hmm. worlds? I don't think I would have been able to, you know, necessarily verbalize it. I think it was more of a feeling and really something that maybe I only recognized in um, in coming back and analyzing those experiences from my current vantage point. Um, I think as a kid, what I was experiencing was, um, you know, I would go to school. I went to a like progressive New York city school where it was very, you know, we were very much encouraged to speak up and ask questions and, you know, raise our voices. And then I would go after school to ballet where you weren't allowed to talk. You weren't allowed to say anything. Um, the, the whole model of teaching was just very old fashioned, very, um, just imitate the teacher, assume that the teacher knows best. And I think that, um, I mean, I was a kind of shy kid. I think I found something very comforting in that, um, in the ballet model. And that definitely wasn't something I was really experiencing any, in any other aspect of my mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you do talk about how, um, the structure and the um, predictability and the comfort in the mm-hmm. rules, right? I mean, it's, I mean, they're strong rules. They're strict rules. They're yeah. very consistent though. Yeah. I mean, I think there was something so reassuring about, um, I mean, ballet is so hard. So of course, none of the, you couldn't totally follow any of the rules, right? Like you can't have, I certainly could not have like 180 degree turnout and extremely pointed feet and, you know, do all these things all at once. But at least I knew what the rules were. Mm -hmm. And there was this feeling like, you know, if I can just follow them, I will progress from first division to second division to third. And then, and then I'll be in the, you know, I'll get this part and then I'll, et cetera. Um, Mm -hmm. And it felt like, yeah, there was this kind of like accessible, um, you know, model for progress. I mean, there's a lot of striving, a lot of right next this, I get, I get this. Mm-hmm. And then I, then I, then I go for this and then I go for this. So there's always something else to aspire to. And yeah. And also you'd look around and you'd see the girls who were two years old or three years old and you're like, mm-hmm. okay, that's who I'm going to be, you know, when mm-hmm. I'm 14. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it's an institution, right. And it's how yeah. you're always looking up to get to be the premier and it just gets mm-hmm. narrower and narrower in terms of the, um, I don't know if narrow is the right word, but expectations yeah. and the, yeah. the what needs to be, the achievements that need to be met to keep moving at such a high level. Yeah. I want to read everyone a quote, which just is this powerful, um, this, this encapsulates so much. How had growing up in a world where our looks were constantly critiqued, where abusive men were in charge where we learned to talk with our bodies instead of our voices, affected our lives? How had it shaped our ideas about how a woman should be and how the sexes interact? 
how did we reconcile our past and our residual love for ballet with the feminist consciousness we eventually developed? That sort of is like the, the preface of the whole exploration. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's something I really started grappling with, I think, more thoughtfully around Me Too when some of these stories were coming out about, um, you know, some of the figures who I had looked up to as a kid. Um, and also just, I think, at, in my mid-20s, late-20s, I started to just feel myself drawn back into the ballet world a little bit, which I run away from after I had um, quit ballet as a teenager. And yeah, I mean, I just like, I was, I was looking at my classmates online. I was started, started to go to the ballet again a little bit. Um, and yeah, just seeing it through my adult eyes, it, <laughs> there was a lot to think about. A few of the other concepts that you hit upon, uh, perfectionism, um, body mm -hmm. image, body dysmorphia, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and of course, all the way to eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Is it? Is it possible to, I mean, are there, is it possible to be a high level ballerina, a competitive ballerina on the stage of your experience and not be perfectionistic in terms of personality type and not develop some level of body dysmorphia? I know I it's a tough say, question. Yeah. I mean, if, if I think about like my era, um, people were training around the same time as me. I mean, mm -hmm. I think even the most naturally gifted dancer is going to have something that is less than ideal, you know, whether it's how high are the arches on their feet or, you know, like it doesn't have to be, I think <laughs> one thing that's kind of interesting is like if people think, that, Oh, dancers are just supposed to be thin. Um, but it's so much more than that. And it's not just about even, you know, the kind of I so-called balancing ideal is like not just thin and narrow hips, but also with a small head and a long neck and, um, you know, extremely long legs. Um, but it's also things like you could have dysmorphia around your feet or around your turnout or, I mean, the way your knees straighten. There's just really an infinite number of ways to, mm -hmm. um, I feel like you're not living up. And yeah, I mean, because there is no such thing as dancing perfectly. Um, I think, I do think that part of the um, kind of psyche of a dancer is around feeling like they're not measuring up. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think it's kind of baked in. And I think you have to have a certain personality type to be drawn to an art form that's so much about precision and, um, the details and yeah, just striving for something that is sort mm -hmm. of impossible. Right. Right. And of course there's, you know, both sides of the coins in all of this, right. This striving mm -hmm. for excellence and then we're striving for excellence to be better and better, better. And then perfectionism, which many think are, is more of a negative fear-based drive. It's a subtle, it could be a subtle distinction because of course you have to keep striving and you have to yeah. keep looking in that mirror. And, and, and so, and that's the other thing I was thinking about as you know, mm -hmm. the mirror comes up so much. Uh, yeah. You're always, ha you're always looking at yourself to assess how you look, how you're moving. And that, it just becomes part of your life ingrained in you. Um, and, and so how does that stay with you, you know, as you, as you move forward? Or does it, did you just leave it behind at 15 when you started to transition? Um, I definitely did not just leave it behind. <laughs> um, but this is another place where I feel like it's kind of hard to tease out um, what was from ballet and what was from the culture. Um, mm -hmm. because I think the way that ballet treats appearance and women's bodies is very extreme, but of course it's not, um, you know, it's not in that aspect isolated from the rest of society. Um, so it's not like I, you know, left the studio and then, um, never saw a mirror again. Mm -hmm. Um, but I definitely, I mean, you know, growing up, we 
the studios all had floor to ceiling mirrors. And of course we would, and we were in, in leotards in front of them for hours every day. You're looking at yourself, you're looking at your peers, comparing yourself. One thing that I, um, was interesting reading about in the book was I read about like uh, cases of clinical body dysmorphia, even outside of the ballet world. And one of the features of it was obsessively looking in the mirror. And that's like something we were forced to do. So it's kind of like we were given these the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the tools to develop body dysmorphia. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, I would say in talking to my classmates who, again, you know, we've all left ballet at least a decade ago, um, it was definitely a theme. I mean, I don't think there was really anyone who had um, who didn't feel they had some lingering issues, right? From that. And, and and just for our listeners, you know, this is a mm-hmm. continuum of, I think, uh, like you said about being in society um, as men and women, and particularly more for women of, you know, having these comparisons. Um, through media and social media mm-hmm. of what one is supposed to look like. That's nothing new. And then there, um, and feeling less than and wanting to change. And, mm-hmm. and then there is the clinical body dysmorphia where it becomes what's considered more of a clinical issue that impacts functioning because there's so much distress um, about how one looks that it, at times it, it, it gets inflated. It almost becomes an irrational um, over-focus on aspects of one's body. Yeah. Well, when I think of like real dysmorphia, I guess I think of one of my old classmates who I, um, who I spoke with for the book, who is, um, you know, very petite, very meets all the society's definitions of conventionally attractive, but, um, you know, told me she sometimes has to change her outfit five times. She feels like she can't leave the house. Um, she'll kind of get stuck in front of the mirror. Um, and I think, the the disconnect between the kind of like what other people might assume and what she feels was very striking to me. I mean, I will say that when I, um, as much as appearance, you know, still matters in the outside world, there was a, a liberating feeling of realizing that it didn't matter as much as it did in ballet. And, you know, mm-hmm. I could gain five pounds and it just, I wasn't going to wear a leotard anymore. So it just, that didn't really matter. So there was some, I mean, you know, it, it was liberating in a sense. Mm-hmm. I can, I can see that. Um, yeah, because there is always a microscope. I mean, not only is there the mirror that you're looking at, there is, I imagine there's a, a microscope. It feels like there's a microscope that's always on you and it's maybe your peers and the older dancers. And of mm-hmm. course the, the teachers, um, yeah. and the directors, it's like, you're always on, right. Being critiqued about what you're doing which is part of the it's part of the deal yeah and also I mean I think the public nature of the critique was different than what I was experiencing in school like in school we'd like get our tests back privately and you know everyone was very polite about that and then in ballet it was like your teacher would just yell at you in front of everyone (laughs) um (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah very very different um and did you, you know, you talk about the greats that, um, the greats in, in, in the teachers and the, um, the student, the, the peoples whose studios are famous. Is it across the board was it, this is just the way it is, or were there some schools or some, um, people coming out, um, from France versus other parts mm-hmm. of the world in America that, that, that taught differently and had different methods or was it all pretty similar strict harsh critique um I mean I think that there at least at the time that I was dancing for one thing we were pretty um I think each school is like pretty siloed so I grew up in the American system it was very focused on George Balanchine and his style of technique I wasn't learning a lot about like the French school Um, But we did have, you know, we had Russian teachers. Um, I came across teachers from different, different countries, but um, I would say the, 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 um, the language of ballet and the kind of etiquette of ballet is pretty universal. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, to the extent that you wouldn't even, 
you know, the bar follows pretty much the same order. Um, you're going to wear your hair pretty similarly. You're not going to, you know, talk. You're going to curtsy to the teacher at the end of class. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say you could probably drop someone comfortably into a ballet class in a different country and they'd do fine. Mm-hmm. You describe ballet as a beautiful pain cult. Mm. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of pain involved in doing ballet. Um, you know, going on point, um, which I did when I was 10 or 11, um, is just, you know, really takes it to a new level. Um, I mean, even just putting on a point shoe is pretty uncomfortable. They're extremely tight. And then, you know, standing up on it, putting all of your body weight on the tip of your toe is just a very unnatural thing to do. Um, and I think we just kind of accepted that, um, there was going to be a fair amount of pain involved in that. Um, and, but I think there was also, I mean, there were some things in the culture that, you know, when I was looking back on these experiences seemed a little bit, um, like we were making it harder, even harder than it needed to be. Um, like people would kind of show off if they weren't wearing as many pads in their point shoes, that could be like another realm of competition. Um, or, you know, if you had a lot of blisters, it would show how devoted you were. Um, and then another thing, which I think maybe has changed a little bit, um, in recent years, but the way injuries were treated was just very, um, you know, you just, you didn't want to be seen as weak. So people would were kind of taught to hide their injuries. Um, one of my friends who I, um, included in the book, um, and who ended up having a short professional career, um, but her, her career was really kind of impeded by her injuries. Um, and they had started when she, she told me she remembered when she was just 12 and she sprained her ankle for the first time. And it was just treated like she said, she felt like she was in trouble and she wasn't really cared for. And instead she was just told she has to come to class every day, but she just has to watch from the front of the room. Um, which kind of felt like, you know, like she was being shamed. Yeah. Punished. Um, Yeah. And then after that, she just, um, took to hiding her injuries, which of course led to them not fully healing, um, and led to her ultimately, I mean, doing crazy things like dancing on a broken foot. Um, I think you had said like seven, several shows a week dancing on a broken foot. It's like incomprehensible. Uh, I mean, yeah, (laughs) I broke my toe recently and I was (laughs) complaining so much. I I, I literally can't imagine dancing on point with a broken foot. And I actually tried on a point shoe recently sort of for for a podcast like this. And, um, oh my God. Yeah. I really softened. (laughs) I like put it on my foot for five seconds. Wow. You talk about their, like so the what what it gave you let's talk about what it gave you right because of course there's all the listeners out there who did ballet or whose kids are in ballet or they're thinking of doing ballet and um you you said so you said it's hard to unlearn a lot of what you learned Mm -hmm. in those years and Mm -hmm. you know some will fall i think on the side where you're like i like these things i learned and there's others that will fall on the sides of i'd like to unlearn those i'm guessing what did you benefit from Um, I mean, I think a really big thing was just having that, um, discipline, um, and that practice. Um, and I think that really is applicable to so many other, you know, parts of life, um, particularly writing, uh, you know, I mean, it's like, I wrote this book, I was a freelancer while writing this book. Um, so, you know, I just had to make my own schedule and, make sure I was meeting deadlines, even if they were months away. Um, so I think having the kind of, uh, like background of just the discipline of the routines of ballet of like, you show up, you are prepared, you are going through the same motions, even if they're kind of boring. Um, and also just, yeah, it's the kind of like striving for excellence and having high expectations for yourself. Um, I mean, I think there are really, uh, like healthy aspects of that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think another thing was like um, the having like been through that experience of being corrected in public and we always treated we were taught to treat corrections like um like as a sign that we were uh worthy of attention um and you know kind of only the favorites were really Mm. singled out um for criticism um I mean I'm not sure if that's like the healthiest mindset but I do think that it um I felt very like well prepared for handling criticism mm-hmm. yes. in the real world because even um even pretty harsh stuff would I was just like it was just never really gonna be as bad as it was in ballet. Yeah, um, it's like the boot camp, right? <laughs> like you're kind of used you're you you're just used to it. So yeah, it's training. Mean, it's training. Point, yeah. Yeah. And like as a writer, you know, of course you get you get mixed reviews and you get, you know, rude comments on good reads and things like that. But I feel like I, yeah, I am just kind of like, it's never going to be as bad as <laughs> that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then on the other side, what are some of if you don't mind sharing, like some of the things yeah. that you have, have been trying to unlearn or have unlearned or in the process of learning that you are trying to leave behind from those intense years. Um, yeah. I mean, I think definitely tr- the kind of trying to tear myself away from the mirror obsession was a, has been continues mm-hmm. to be a process. Um, I think, I mean, now like I still take, ballet classes from time to time because I still do enjoy the movements. Um, but like going back into that environment can still be very triggering. Um, and I can start, a, I can sort of start like comparing myself to the way I used to look when I was literally a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think my, like my image of what a woman of what's attractive in like a woman kind of was shaped by ballet and I don't know that I'll ever totally unlearn that. Uh you said the traits ballet takes the, the traits ballet takes to an extreme. The beauty, the thinness, the stoicism and silence and submission are all valued in girls and women everywhere. Right? So mm-hmm. this is that that paradox about as you said like the ballet tradition and culture is embedded in our larger culture and mm-hmm. here these things are valued and the more you do them and be them and embody them mm-hmm. the more successful you're supposed to be but again you're this um you were this emerging f- feminist uh <laughs> minded woman in the world uh, and are uh, today mm-hmm. and so it just feels like these are lots of, I mean, life is not black and white. Life is often gray. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of this um, murky, like th- these are murky things to to navigate. Yeah. And I mean, I think like in ballet, I mean, the majority of the students were girls, right? Like there were so few boys that they all got automatic scholarships. Whereas for girls, it was very competitive to get into school I was at and you know that was like at every level at summer programs you know we would do partnering classes and there would be like five girls for every boy so we would just take turns sharing them and I think that kind of thing teaches you this um feeling of being kind of like replaceable or needing to compete harder um and then you know most of the core dancers are women but then the choreographers are still largely men I mean as recently as a few years ago you could um go see a whole season of New York city ballet and not see a single work by a woman. Um, the directors tended to be men. Um, but of course this is something that, you know, is familiar in, in many parts of society. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, things may be changing, but like my first job at a magazine, almost all of the editors were men and most of the younger people were women. So, I mean, it was, these environments felt, 
familiar and comfortable in a way that, um, you know, is a little sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and then we bring in the Me Too movement. And not that, mm-hmm. of course, all of this stuff has been going on for a long time. And the Me Too movement brought it to the mm-hmm. fore. How, and these, as you write about, these people who are heroes were also people who mistreated and abused women. And so how, again, how, how did you navigate that? How do you navigate the Me Too movement and what came out with this, um, with, with, with this institution that you, um, spent a lifetime in love with and still are in, in some ways, mm-hmm. right? So much a part of you. Yeah. And then these greats are unfortunately just like so many other men with power who have taken advantage and mistreated and abused. Yeah. I mean, one figure who I spent a lot of time grappling with in the course of writing the book was George Balanchine who founded school of American Ballet and New York city ballet um, and was so beloved by his dancers, who were my teachers. Um, and, you know, they would just, they would speak about him almost as if he was still alive. He died in 1983. I started SAP in 2001. Um, mm. But, you know, very much seemed like they were kind of living for him and to preserve his legacy um, and were so devoted. And then while I was re- um, researching the book, I mean, I knew vaguely like, oh, he had married a number of his dancers and, um, you know, maybe there, there's more to see here, but he was generally seen as such a hero, um, that it was really only in, in reading the biographies and some of the memoirs, um, that I saw how, just how, you know, controlling he could be, you know, telling his dancers not to have children, um, one dancer who became obsessed with and then fired after she married someone else. Um, just uh, telling women which perfume to wear and just very creepy behavior. Um, and kind of like, I, I really wanted to, um, grapple with how to reconcile that and how that sounds to us now with how the dancers who worked with him still talk about him and still seem to really like love and revere him And I think that tension was kind of like what kept me interested. Like this wasn't just a story of a straightforward me too monster. Um, It was much more ambiguous Mm -hmm. than that. Has there, has the institution, the ballet institution done anything formally that you're aware of since me too, this me too movement? Um, Well, Peter Martins was uh, pushed out of his role as the head of New York city ballet a few years Mm -hmm. ago. Um, but he was never, he was never totally like disowned. I mean, they still perform his choreography. So, so yes and no, maybe or a little, a little bit. Yeah. 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 Not surprising. Just like all facets of life, you bring up the issue of racism in ballet. And Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you can tell us, um, you know, what's the evolution and of, of, of the racism in the ballet and of course like white skin, um, Mm -hmm. as you write, you know, more valued than darker skin and, and, and where's this going? Yeah. I mean, when I was growing up, I think there was one black woman at New York city ballet. Um, and she was often typecast. Um, and I mean, I think there was just this, like, very direct, like, there were certain directors who just wanted everyone to look the same. I mean, ballet values conformity. Um, The core dancers, it's it's about all looking the same. Um, And, I mean, I think things are changing. Obviously, Misty Copeland is a major superstar. Um the first black woman to be a principal dancer at American ballet theater. Um, And I think like she's, her image has, has helped to change things a bit. Um, But there's also just stuff that's baked into the repertoire. Um, There are, you know, 
really outdated stereotypes, even in ballets as popular as the Nutcracker, um, which is most children's entry point to ballet. I think it was right. probably mine. Um, it's, you know, how most ballet companies make like most of their money. Um, and that's about in act two. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the, <laughs> the story of the Nutcracker, but act two follows, um, Clara or Marie as she goes to the land of sweets and she sees these dances that are like represent different types of candy, but also they're each supposed to be from a different country. And like, um, for example, the Chinese tea dance in the Balanchine production has these like very sort of offensive movements. And um, they used to even have the dancers in like yellow face. And one of my friends um, who's in the book, who is Vietnamese American and actually played the, she was the child star. She played Marie and she told me about how, how weird it felt when she would be on stage kind of um, in this scene, she's on a throne. She's supposed to be a princess. She's supposed to be a German princess actually. And she's watching um, the adult professional dancers kind of make fun of her culture um, mm-hmm. And she talks about not really having the language for that to understand what was going on, but just like knowing it felt wrong. Yeah. So obviously there is, um, well, there's a long way to go, but there are some just like in other aspects of our culture, like we're at the beginning, right? At the beginning of trying to become aware and hopefully make some positive changes. Um, yeah. You- I mean, I think there, there are things like, um, just in the last couple of years, um, more point shoe companies have started making, um, putting out point shoes in different, in darker colors. Traditionally, they were only like peach colored. So dancers with darker skin would have to hand dye them. Um, and I mean, also we're seeing some of the really rigid gender norms being played with a little bit more. Um, like the traditional, traditional partnering work, um, cottages were very like the man is leading the woman around um and just kind of picking her up and putting her down and there's a little bit more you know now you'll see sometimes same sex partnering and um mm-hmm. just a little bit more egalitarian stuff we're getting there baby steps, <laughs> baby steps. <laughs> long way to uh, go but. yes for parents out there who yeah. are, you know, like their, their <laughs> girls are either they're, 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 they're girls or boys they're starting or they're in it. Right. Or they, or, and, or they have a child who is like, this is what they want to do. Right. They're all in like you were, what, what would be recommendations for just how for parents to be thinking about ballet, its impact, the institution, um, all the effects on their potential effects on their child. I asked all my friends from the book whether they would let a kid do ballet and they had all different answers that changed every time I asked them. And I think it's something Mm -hmm. we've all thought about. Mm -hmm. Um, I think like, okay, if if a kid is really young, right. I mean, the vast, vast majority of girls, I think boys have such a different experience. I won't even focus on girls. Um, of girls who are drawn to ballet and want to wear a tutu and who get into it for a bit are not going to go on and have and have it dominate their childhood in the way it did mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if it is going in that direction, I guess, I think when I was growing up, there was such a focus on, we were pre-professional students and the, the job that we were doing was to prepare ourselves for a career. And there wasn't a lot of like, I felt like awareness of the fact that 90% for 90, 95% of us, we weren't going to have a career. So like mm-hmm. what else were we learning and what actually was the role of this training in our lives? So I think even just like thinking about that, being conscious of it. I mean, you know, obviously like eating, eating issues are, I think people know to look out for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, for good reason. I'm glad you brought up the eating issue. We uh, we didn't go fully there. We went to body dysmorphia and then we stopped. So let's just keep this going because this is really important. There's such a high 
um, h- higher incidence, even just outside of LA, um, in sports and just in our culture these days with women. And of course, an increasing, um, increasing rate with males as well yeah. of eating disorders. How, having been in this, you know, mm-hmm. what's, what's the, what's the thing to look for from your perspective when it started to go from, yeah, I need to look a certain way and I need to have my body be a certain way and do certain things to it actually starts to veer towards disordered eating and then the consequences that can, the health consequences that come with that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really hard to disentangle if someone is doing ballet because uh, I mean, a lot of professional dancers, whatever their eating habits are, are extremely underweight. Um, I mean, one, I remember reading this one dancer's memoir, very successful New York City ballet dancer talking about how when she goes to the doctor, she has to explain that she's not anorexic. She's just a ballet dancer. Um, yeah. And cause like it's something that would always come up cause she's so small. Right. Um, so I just don't like, I mean, I, I would love to see like, uh, you know, I think until we're seeing, cause students look up to dancers like her. And I just mm-hmm. think like, if you were trying to, um, induce an eating disorder you would create the environment that of ballet you would force someone to look in the mirror all day and surround them with underweight people um Mm. i just like don't actually know that there unless we see a lot more like dancers with different body types at the top i don't know that ballet will ever be like a eating disorder free zone yeah yeah so i hear what i'm hearing is, I mean, you actually put that really well. Like if you're going to create an environment to (laughs) induce an eating disorder, have people wear very tight clothes, be in front of a mirror all day, compare themselves to others, and then have older adults, adults in authority criticize them about how they look and all of that stuff. Right. So it's like, and again, I know I'm being, I'm being negative here, but, um, or no, but also realistic. Yeah. So I think maybe the message is, to be aware because the environment is completely conducive to creating uh, eating disorder out of trying to be successful in the craft, right? It's just to I have to have this awareness. Yeah. I mean, I think another temptation of, of eating, of controlling your food is like, there's so much in ballet that it's very hard to control you. Um, you know, it's really hard to improve your turnout and improve, Prove your jumps and turns and actually execute difficult steps. Um, but I think it's like tempting to just restrict your food because it feels like an easier way to improve. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I did read some um, interesting studies about like um, students who are doing ballet, but uh not in front of mirrors or not wearing leotards and how just small Hmm. switches like that could actually make them feel a lot more positive about their bodies. I also actually want to mention that um, it is not just like pre-professional students who are at risk for, for eating issues. Um, There's actually like um, an idea that it's like students who aren't doing as well, who might even be more susceptible to eating disorders, kind of for the reasons I just described, that it's like a kind of grasp at, at improving. Um, but yeah, also just like the the aesthetics, the ideals are very powerful um, and seductive, mm-hmm. even to someone who's taking a few ballet classes a week. And yes. also, I mean, you know, there are other forms of dance. When I was doing ballet, we were very like, <laughs> I think the ballet people we kind of saw ourselves as purists like ballet is the hardest Mm -hmm. thing Um, but there are many other forms of dance that are much more accepting different body types so those are all really important points um really important points and just so just to for us to be aware of all of these parents just be aware of all these um in a recent episode we had um on the fun habit our guest talked about when he was um, doing research for um, performance and a performance improvement device, like feedback devices, you know, like you wear on their wash um, and they were doing mm-hmm. it with athletes and they realized one of the people in their studies who was this 
you know, really in shape, extreme athlete, she mm -hmm. developed, she, he realized she was developing an eating disorder because of the constant feedback she was getting on all aspects of her body and her performance. Oh, yeah. Realize the, there are environment, there are people who are vulnerable to certain environments that might, um, that we just have to be aware of. And then for like her, they're like, okay, this isn't a good study for you. Like, this is not, this is yeah. not. Well, I have to listen to that. I mean, I feel like I've actually sort of intuited that a little bit in my own life. Like I, um, I got into like running during the pandemic and I downloaded Strava and I just got yes, super yes. obsessed with it. And I was just yeah. like, I, I can't, this can't be my thing. <laughs> yes. Too much good for you. Good for you. I am, um, I'm, always been pretty driven and try to set my own metrics and achievement oriented, mm -hmm. particularly more so when I was younger. And I also love to run. And so mm -hmm. it's been several years that I finally just like threw my watch away because I, I, yeah. I finally realized I am doing this to think and to get exercise and to actually like to yeah. recreate. And it was no yeah. fun when I'm yeah. just trying to beat times as opposed to. <laughs> yeah. So I had to do a similar thing. Um, Okay. So Alice, um, what's you, I, I'm getting to, we're getting to the parent footprint moment question, but I just want to ask one, one question first. It's like, so in the end, I really, um, I really was intrigued by your ending and it just, mm -hmm. it reminded me of, a the ending of great existential novels that I've read in the past. And I'll, I'll say it's because you just, you left us with just kind of where you're at. Like, still learning, still growing, you know, like, so what's yeah. the, what's the, the current ending for you, knowing that you will still mm -hmm. continue to evolve? Like, where are you now on all of, through this whole process of exploring? Yeah. I mean, I think my feelings also, I wrote the book over the course of like, I guess ages like 27 to 30. Um, so things were changing both in my life and through the process of writing the book and engaging intensely with this material. Um, I think there was a kind of therapeutic aspect of it. Um, there, yeah, there are certain things that I write about. I mean, even like some of the body stuff being a prime example that I think were much more potent when I felt more potent when I wrote them a few years ago, um, mm -hmm. and feel a little more distant now, but I think the central kind of, um, you know, ambiguities are the same. Like I still feel drawn to ballet, um, took a ballet class last week. I mm -hmm. have been to the ballet. I've been to New York City Ballet twice this season. Um, <laughs> I'm still drawn to it, but I still, um, you know, feel complicated about it and feel triggered by different, different parts of it. And yes. Yeah. I think it'll yes. continue to evolve. It's a yes. And right. <laughs> yeah. It'll continue yeah. to evolve. Yeah. Okay. Parent footprint moment question. Here we go. <laughs> tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual as a parent an awareness of your own parents and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life a child's and or those you love okay well i am not yet a parent myself yes. um so but i thought about my decision to dedicate this book to my parents. Um, my first book, which was about dreams, didn't have a dedication because I felt like that was a very like internal kind of personal book and nothing felt quite right. But this book felt like the one to dedicate to my parents because I think, um, you know, my parents, neither of them had any experience with ballet when I got really into it. And I kind of drew them into the world a little bit. Um, and I was actually... I guess, I guess my like moment was I was, um, as part of the book, I was digging up all this stuff from like under the bed in my childhood bedroom. And, um, I went through some of the stuff with my mom and we found this box of audi audition photos, um, that she had taken. Um, like you have to submit them when you're applying to summer mm -hmm. intensives. And there were just like, I mean, like a hundred of me in the same arabesque. And I think like looking at that as an adult and seeing like kind of my expression changing in different ones. And I could see like what I was like, one, I'm like, clearly I'm like mad at her. And then I'm like, you know, it's just like, she just, I could see how much time she had sort of 
put into like mm-hmm. snapping these photos. I felt her presence in them more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, that's a great, that's a great memory because we, as kids who are fortunate enough to be supported by their parents, we're often mm-hmm. in our own world, living that life and that world and striving mm-hmm. that we don't fully often appreciate how much parent support has gone in to our lives and those endeavors, right? Like how much it yeah. takes on the parent side and to look back and then see, to see it through the pictures um, from much Yeah, and even now, like I'm giving, I'm giving some of these photos to various like magazines that are publishing excerpts and things like that. And it's all like, Photo credit, Deborah Rob. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Well, Alice, thank you for coming on the show today and sharing your story and putting your story out there. I mean, as I said at the beginning of the show, you've had it's so many positive reviews. So many people are excited mm-hmm. about your book. So please tell everyone where they can find "Don't Think, Dear" on Loving and Leaving Ballet. Um, yeah, it should be in, in most bookstores. It's certainly online on all the big places, uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, independent bookstores. I also, um, I read the audiobook myself. This nice. Time. Nice. What about where they can find you? I am on Twitter all too often at Alice L. Rob. And that's with two B's, everybody. R-O-B-B. Thanks, Alice. Appreciate the conversation and wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Everyone, please send this show to everyone who you think will benefit all of these future ballerinas and people who are even recreating in in, in ballet. There's, uh, There's so much in here for everyone. And in this book, it's so much about growing up, about being female, about the institutions, about our culture, about racism the me too movement there's so much in this book for us to ponder upon and benefit from as well as be entertained of course thank you for your five-star reviews they mean a lot to us do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question i ask myself each day what footprint do you want to leave This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.